in a sea of pessimism in our culture, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be very optimistic. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these three parables that we will consider in just a few moments. We thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you for the blessing that we have in being able to read your word, to study it, We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates the word for us, and we thank you for the means of grace, the preaching of your word. Be pleased to use it this morning to bring about your purposes in our lives as we are faithful in hearing the word, make the preacher faithful in declaring these truths. Lord, work in us, show us that we are to be optimistic today and for the future. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn to Mark chapter 4? We'll be reading from verse 21 to verse 34, looking at three parables of Jesus. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Some tend to, ha- uh, some tend to have a pessimistic view of life. When they look at a glass with water in it, they see the glass half empty. Of course, others would look at that same glass that is, and they would see it as being half full. The current state of our culture challenges the most optimistic of us to see the glass half full. In fact, there is much in our culture that shows that indeed the glass is half empty and it's getting emptier. In a Pew study earlier this year, the the research found that 80% 
of Americans have a bleak assessment of the state of things in our country. And the outlook for the future is not much brighter. The report found large numbers of Americans see our country in decline, and by 2025, they believe, or the report shows that, that many believe the economy will be weaker, the U.S. will be less important as a country on the world stage, the country will be more politically divided. Is that possible? when you consider how divided we are today. But apparently most Americans think it's going to get worse by 2050. And of course the, the difference between the rich and the poor will continue to grow. The study confirms, if we are upfront, what we all know. We live in a very pessimistic time, and as we look to the future, it's a pessimistic outlook. In a sea of pessimism, however, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be optimistic. And so today, while all the evidence, all the facts, the reality shows, we should really be pessimistic about life today and life in the future, yet for the believer, we are to be very optimistic. And I want to show you why. In fact, Jesus tells us why in these three parables. He gives us an optimistic perspective because the glory of Christ and his mission will be revealed and will be revealed even more, that the kingdom of God is growing and will grow to its fullest. And the kingdom of God is great. The greatness of the kingdom is another reason for us to be optimistic. The revelation of the glory of Christ, the growth of the church, and the greatness of the kingdom of God, those three things, these three parables show us the believer is to be optimistic in a day and in a culture where pessimism seems to reign. So first, believers are to be optimistic because the glory of Christ and his mission to bring the kingdom, that is the saving reign of God, was never intended to remain a secret, to remain hidden, to be under a peck measure or under a bed but to be revealed and one day to be revealed in full. So look at verses 21 through 25, the first of the three parables for today. Some years ago, the series Undercover Boss was airing, and I remember I just out of curiosity, I watched the very first episode of this particular television show, and it was about these these executives in these large companies that they would go undercover and actually take low-level jobs within their organization just so they could have a, have a first-hand experience on how things were going in their country. And so the first episode featured the head of waste management. 
that large waste disposal country uh, company, and we've, we've seen their trucks throughout the week. And so this particular executive, this, this CEO, this head of this major company in our country went undercover and took a series of jobs within the waste management company. The first job that he took was to work along with another employee who had been doing this same job for a number of years, and the job was to go around the landfill and pick up trash that had blown out of the landfill and was blowing around. And so the undercover boss is out there with his little stick in his bag picking up trash. And then his fellow employee who had been at this job for a number of years came up to him at the end of the day and said, hey, listen, buddy, you're not going to make it. You need to quit. And so at the end of the series, all the, all the low-level employees that worked with this undercover boss were brought into a meeting, and the true identity of, the, of this mysterious employee was disclosed. And of course, to everybody's just amazement that the head of the company would humble himself and take these, these jobs. But it was a great, a great lesson and in a sense, this is what this parable is telling us, that though for a time the person, work, mission, identity of the Lord Jesus Christ may be concealed, yet it will be fully revealed one day. Remember two weeks ago we looked at the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 20. And this first parable that we find Jesus telling in the Gospel of Mark is very much about why Jesus uses parables. Now, he tells a parable of the sower, but in the context of telling this parable, he, he says that he uses parables to reveal the secret of the kingdom to some, you see that in verse 11, and to conceal it or to hide it from others, the one who has the ears to hear, the one who has been enabled by God, is able to, to hear the word and to understand the secret. He's been enabled by God, but the one who has not ears to hear, who has not been enabled by God, is just a mystery what this parable, what this teaching is all about. So there is this component of the reality of the kingdom being revealed to some and hidden uh, to others. But now in our parable today in verses 21 through 25, Jesus uses the imagery of a lamp to teach that one day that the secret of the kingdom is going to be fully revealed to all. Now we need to be careful to say that throughout the history of the church, Jesus is revealed to those whom God enables. He's been revealed to me. He's been revealed to to you. We've, we've come to the place of seeing our sin, our need for Jesus, to seeing who Jesus is, and we've, we've been given the ability to flee to him in repentance and faith. So he has been revealed to us, but there's so many to whom Jesus has not been revealed. But there's a day coming, this is the point of the parable, where Jesus is who he is and what he's done, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, 
the Lord of glory is going to be fully disclosed to all. And so the lamp in this parable is not intended to stay under a basket. Actually, it's a peck measure, a, a, a basket that measures grain or under a bed, but it's to be on a stand. That's, so the lamp doesn't come to be hidden, but to be revealed. Now, the lamp in this parable may be understood as representing the proclamation of the kingdom, and certainly we should be about spreading the light of the Lord Jesus, the spreading the, the gospel message of the kingdom. So yes, that is true. This glorious gospel, this message of the kingdom of God that has come in the person of Jesus Christ is not to be hidden, it's not to be put under a basket, it's not to be put under a bed, it's to be put on a stand and the light to go forth. So yes, that is a legitimate way to understand this parable, but I think Mark is intending something even more fundamental than this. The modern translations of our Bibles, the NIV, the ESV, the New King James Version, for example, translate the verb in verse 21, brought, and the indefinite article is used for lamp. So it says, a lamp brought. That's what our modern translations use. But there is evidence in the original Greek that the verb is actually better translated come, which makes no sense. A lamp doesn't come. A lamp is brought, right? But then also in the original language, the definite article is used so that I think a more accurate reading is the lamp came. Now, what is the point of all this? It is not to say that our modern translations are wrong. No, I think a lamp being brought proclaimed the kingdom of God is a legitimate way to understand this parable, but I want us to see another aspect to it that actually Mark intends to identify not an object, a lamp, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the lamp who came to bring the kingdom of God in all of its glory and power, even though for a time it will be hidden, but in time will be revealed. Verse 22 teaches that the identity and ministry of Jesus is veiled for a time. Look at verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So for a time, there was mystery around who Jesus was and what he came to do. But the primary teaching of this parable is that the veil, the veil comes off to certain people, doesn't it? When God does a work of grace in their life, their eyes are open, they're given new ears, they're able to understand Jesus, and they come by God's grace to saving faith. But the point of the parable is that plus th that at the appropriate time, the veil will come off and everyone will acknowledge who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. They will understand and acknowledge his mission. They will behold his glory, his messianic glory. 
Jesus' earthly ministry culminating on the cross in much of the Gospels was misunderstood. It was shadowy. It was anything but glorious. Even his disciples struggled to understand what Jesus was up to, what he came to do. And certainly those outside the kingdom were equally confused about who Jesus was and what he came to do. But the victorious King of kings and Lord of Lord completed his messianic mission. He secured salvation for sinners from the resurrection and the ascension on that which was hidden would be revealed progressively and man would behold the light of his glory. Some would refuse to respond in faith while others would be given the gift of faith where they would respond in repentance and faith. More and more the kingdom would grow. Sinners would come to see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and be saved. The darkness of Satan's kingdom would be pushed back and the kingdom would grow. And those who continue to refuse to acknowledge Jesus would be further condemned. That is the context of this, this parable. But verses 24 and 25 teach the importance of how one responds and that there, is, there are eternal consequences. Those who respond to the coming of the kingdom in Jesus Christ will be given more and will inherit an ultimate reward while those who remain hardened in unbelief will have that which they have taken away and suffer ultimate loss. And all of this is leading up, this, this concealing and revealing, all of this is leading up to that one day, that great day, that day at the end of the age when the veil will come off completely and the secret will be disclosed fully to the elect and to the reprobate, that Christ's glory will be manifested absolutely, and that day is the day of Christ's second coming, the day of consummation. And we may understand the parable in this way, that the undercover Savior will be revealed progressively as sinners are saved and come to faith, but will be revealed ultimately at the end of the age where all will acknowledge him as Lord. All will bow the knee to King Jesus. And one text that shows this, I believe, is, is Paul's words in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, where he speaks previously in verses 5 through 7 of the Lord Jesus setting aside his divine rights and coming down to take the form of a servant even dying on a cross for the salvation of the elect, describing his state of humiliation. And then in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is describing his state of exaltation. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
There's a day coming when even the reprobate will bow the knee in acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and judge. So for some, this is a very pessimistic future. They did not want Jesus in life, and they are not going to have Jesus in eternity. The stern word in verse 24 of ultimate loss should cause you, if you are not seeking Jesus today, to consider your destiny and to consider responding in repentance and faith to the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. For one day, your knee will bow to him And will you bow your knee to him as your personal Lord and Savior? Or will you bow your knee to him as the judge and receive his judgment for your hard-heartedness? Every knee will bow. I believe that's what this parable is getting at. That is a very pessimistic future for those who do not want Jesus today. But it is an incredibly optimistic reality for the believer because the glory of Christ and his mission to bring the kingdom, the, the saving presence and reign of God was never intended to be secret. It's been revealed to me, it's been revealed to you, progressive, and it's progressively being revealed. But one day, the veil will be completely taken off and every knee will bow. And we have the privilege of bowing before Jesus that day as our Lord and our Savior. And so this parable has an eschatological and end times focus. It, it, it focuses our eyes to the future, a future that is optimistic for the believer and then secondly, we are to be optimistic because of the growth of the kingdom and that the growth of the kingdom is not dependent on our abilities or efforts, but on God's sovereign plan and power. Look at verses 26 through 29. What is a black box? I'm not talking about a box, a cardboard box that you would paint black. I'm talking about the phrase that we often use to communicate, I'm using this, but I have no idea how it works. I just know that if I do this, it will do that. Think of a mobile phone, for example. A black box has been defined as a device, a system, or an object which can be viewed in terms of its inputs and outputs without any knowledge of internally how it works. I mean, we dial a number on our phone to call so-and-so, and so-and-so -so picks up input, output, but we have no idea how it works, all that's going on to make that call possible. Thankfully, we have some engineers who do, but I don't. It's a black box to me. The real-life situation of this parable may not be a black box to us and really shouldn't be. We've taken biology classes. We understand germination. We understand how you plant a seed, it germinates, and it grows. We understand that. But yet, in the first century, it was a black box. 
And that's what Jesus is communicating here. The, the story is about a man who scatters a seed. And he sleeps night after night after night. And the text says, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how, verse 27. What he knew is that you plant the seed, and in time there will be a harvest. And the harvest is great. And somehow there is some power unleashed in between the planting of the seed and the harvest that causes this, this growth that results in the harvest. But, but that in the middle is a mystery. It's a black box. He knows not how. So let's consider verse 28 that, that verse 28 tells us that there will be a harvest which will result be the result of this power that is unleashed by the planting of, of the seed. The key is to see the result had nothing to do with the farmer. That, that's the point of this, this parable. He sows the seed, but yet he doesn't cause it to germinate. He doesn't really cause it to grow. In fact, he is asleep. Just emphasizing the fact that this harvest comes about not by the ability or efforts of this farmer. The earth produces, the text says, first the blade, then the ear, the full grain, then the full grain in the ear. This seemingly black box of this parable is not so mysterious when we consider that the power that causes the kingdom of God to grow is the providential work of our sovereign God. The words of Ezekiel 17 that, that depicts the coming of, the, of Messiah and the growth of his kingdom, the, the passage that Dan read, points really to this parable, what Jesus is communicating here. The kingdom was established and will grow by the power and work of God. And the very end of the passage that Dan read in verse 24, the Lord said, I will do it. And that really is the point of this parable. It is God who causes the growth of his kingdom. The power unleashed is the power of the messianic work of Christ that that is the power of growing the kingdom of God according to the sovereign purposes of God. The kingdom grows in hard places. It grows in hard places because it grows by the power of God, not by the power of man. In the Muslim world, the, the country with the greatest growth of the church is Indonesia. And the kingdom of God is growing in Indonesia. Think of communist countries like China. The kingdom of God, the church, is growing in China. Think of the African continent, some of the most impoverished places, hard places, and the kingdom of God is growing on the continent of Africa. Think of France. I made reference to this some weeks ago, or two weeks ago, actually. A spiritually dry place, and yet the church is growing in France. And think of the church here in the United States of America. No longer are we the bastion of vital, vibrant Christianity. We're a mission field and becoming more so 
And yet, in this hard place, the church of Jesus Christ is growing. Why is it growing? It's because God said, I will do it. The scripture is clear. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What we need to see and where we find great optimism here is that this church grows while we're asleep. It doesn't grow by our ability or by our effort. It doesn't grow because we have a great church growth strategy, because we put our hand to the till, because we innovate, because we have a strategy, because we're experts in evangelism. Oh, yeah, God can use all of that, but the church doesn't grow because of that. The church grows because of Christ. God said, I will do it. It is by the power of Christ's redeeming work, unleashed as the gospel is proclaimed and declared, as the gospel is scattered across the world. And it's because of Christ and his redeeming work. It's because of him that there is a harvest of souls and saints and kingdom people. And such a harvest in verse 29 points to the harvest of Jesus at his second coming. God said, I will do it in Ezekiel. I will establish my church. I will establish my church worldwide. I will establish my church in the hard places. I will establish my church here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. I will establish my church in the branch known as the Presbyterian Church in America. I will establish my church universally. God will do it. What is God's church growth plan. It's not innovative theologies. It's not methodology. It is Christ-centered and Christ-exalting worship. That's how the church grows. It is preaching his word faithfully. That's how the church grows. It is administering the sacraments of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the church grows. It is prayer. That's how the church grows. That is God's growth strategy for the church, the means of grace. And we would be wise and we would be faithful to avail ourselves of the means of grace and see what God will do. I will do it, says the Lord. That is so optimistic. We don't have to come up with some nifty strategy to grow the church. We just need to be faithful to use God's church growth plan the means of grace that I've described this morning. And stand back and watch him grow the church. I will do it, says the Lord. That's an optimistic perspective for today and for the future. And then lastly, the greatness of the kingdom. That's the reason to be optimistic. Verses 30 through 34 I planted a few sweet potato plants or seeds in, in my backyard one year, and I went out, and they were growing, which was good, and they continued to grow, and I had my entire backyard covered with sweet potato vines. I've never seen the likes of it. Out of just this very humble, small beginning, there were vines everywhere, and I got a harvest of the ugliest yet tastiest sweet potatoes. In verse 21, Jesus stated the mustard seed was the smallest seed on earth. It actually is not the smallest seed on earth. In a Jewish context, however, the size of the mustard seed was 
proverbial since it was the smallest seed planted in the field. So in their context, it was the smallest seed. And there was a proverb that actually developed because of this, that when you wanted to really describe something small, you would say, that's as small as a mustard seed. One report says that it takes 725 to 760 mustard seeds to weigh a gram. I want to see the guy who determined that. But this mustard seed, this small little seed, this humble beginning can grow into a great shrub that may be as high as 10 to 12 feet. In this parable, Jesus related a mustard seed to the kingdom to show the humble, small beginnings of the kingdom will develop into a mighty, pervasive kingdom. And we see this teaching reflected in Ezekiel 17 that Dan read earlier. We see it reflected in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. And in our text today, verse 32 shows the greatness of the kingdom. In first century Palestine, birds would shelter under these mustard seed shrubs. And Jesus captures that imagery to show the, the protection and, and the, the refuge and the greatness that his kingdom will provide. The kingdom of God began a very enigmatic way, but will grow to have ultimate dominion, dominion over all. Paul reflects this in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when he says, this kingdom that resulted from such a small, humble beginning has turned the world upside down. We see in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 21 that the tree that that represented Nebuchadnezzar and his great kingdom, where, where it's described as the birds sheltering under his kingdom, depicting Nebuchadnezzar's worldwide domination. And the Babylonian Empire did rise on the scene, but where is the Babylonian Empire today? It rose, it fell. The kingdoms of men, as great as they may think they are, will rise and they will fall. But in this parable, Jesus not only tells that his kingdom will be infinitely greater than any human kingdom, but that his kingdom's greatness will extend into eternity. Truly, Jesus's kingdom is forever. And what is amazing about the scriptures is that the one man who believed his kingdom was great and had worldwide domination actually praises God that his kingdom has ultimate dominion. After Nebuchadnezzar was restored, he says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the greatness of God's kingdom. And we are to be optimistic because of the greatness of the kingdom of God, demonstrated in beginning small but becoming pervasive, the only kingdom that stretches into eternity. And think of the blessing that we have to be a part of that great kingdom. The people of God are to have an optimistic perspective for today and for the future based on 
the fact that the glory of Christ and his mission, his identity will, is being revealed to sinners today for their salvation, but one day will be revealed to all. And we'll bow the knee before our Savior. We're, we're optimistic because of the growth of the kingdom. It's not by our ability or our method, just by the power of God. And think of the optimism of the greatness of Christ's kingdom. The only kingdom, the only institution that will stretch into eternity. And we are part of that. You know, some people look at the glass and it's, and it's half full. Optimists. Some people look at the glass and it's half empty. Pessimists. But I would say the people of God are neither. What we should look at the glass is that it's full to overflowing because of the fact that the glory of Christ will ultimately be revealed. And the growth of the kingdom cannot be thwarted. And the greatness of the kingdom will stretch into eternity. In a sea of pessimism, Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are optimistic because of Jesus. He brought the kingdom, and it's being revealed and will be revealed. He's growing the kingdom. We're sowing. He's causing the growth. And nothing is going to stop that growth. And his kingdom is pervasive. It is great. And we will be a part of that kingdom in eternity. Let us pray. Father, it is our prayer today that you would enable us to be optimistic. Even though there's so much and so many reasons to be pessimistic with our culture. Yet, Lord, show us in these three parables why we should be optimistic. Give us a hope and a joy that is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Father, thank you for revealing the Lord Jesus to us and bringing us into the kingdom. Enable us, Lord, to be faithful, optimistic, joyful kingdom citizens for your glory. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.